The rest of us can turn in the scriptures to the prophecy of Joel. We're learning about our awesome God from the book of the Twelve. This is one of the least familiar portions of the Bible. It's usually referred to as the Minor Prophets. And I recently pointed out that it's critical to know that they're called minor rather than major, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. These are the minor prophets, not because they're less skilled or of a lower quality than the major prophets. Instead, it's totally a descriptor of their size. The minor prophets altogether equal about the length of one of the major prophets. So if you are using that black hardcover Bible and you go from Hosea all the way to Malachi, all the 12 minor prophets, and you hold them as a chunk, you're actually holding a shorter portion than if you just grabbed the one book of Isaiah. It's actually five pages shorter than Isaiah, the entire book of the 12. They're called minor prophets because of their length. All of the prophets, whether major or minor, were essentially political commentators. They were political commentators to the Hebrews, especially to the kings, but to the nation as a whole. And on God's behalf, they exposed the nation's corruption. And they basically said, if you keep on in these ways, God is threatening your nation's collapse. They're basically political commentators who are telling the nation you're on the verge of collapse. If you don't change, collapse is inevitable. They were continually saying, here's what's wrong with our society, and here's what's going to happen as a result. So, as I said two weeks ago when I was teaching on Hosea, it's absolutely critical that you have a very, very basic framework of Israel's history of Israel's history. And I can summarize it pretty much in three statements. If you begin at the peak of the kingdom around the time of David and Solomon, this is the united kingdom of Israel all under the throne in Jerusalem. It's about 1,000 B.C. Okay, that's your first marker. 1,000 B.C. Well, in the generation after Solomon, the kingdom split. It's around 900 B.C., a little before 900 B.C. It's split into north and south. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and it was governed in Samaria. The southern kingdom was most typically referred to by the name Judah, and it was ruled on the throne in Jerusalem. So the kingdom splits in the generation after Solomon. Third fact both kingdoms are eventually decimated. 722, the Assyrians decimate the northern kingdom of Israel, centered in Samaria. The Assyrian world power decimates Israel. About 130 years later, the southern kingdom is decimated, this time by the world power Babylon, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. That happens finally in 586 B.C., So you have the United Kingdom in a thousand, the generation after Solomon, it splits into north and south, and eventually both kingdoms are decimated by world powers, by Assyria, the northern kingdom, by Babylon, the southern kingdom. 
The first of these books that we studied was Hosea. Got it marked there in gray this time so you can distinguish it from Joel in orange. We looked at Hosea two weeks ago, and Hosea spoke his unforgettable message to the northern kingdom. And his whole life was, in a sense, a picture, a powerful, vivid prophecy saying, the northern kingdom of Israel is continually cheating on God, just like Hosea's wife, Gomer, continually cheated on him. It's an unforgettable message. And Hosea preached that in the generation immediately preceding the decimation by the Assyrians. Hosea was a political commentator saying, we are headed for collapse if we don't change. Joel, by contrast, was preaching to the southern kingdom about a generation before, which if you just do the math, he's actually speaking to the southern kingdom over 200 years before that kingdom falls to the Babylonians. And I think Joel just really highlights the incredible patience of God to give people centuries to turn before his judgment falls. I'm going to take quite a bit of time this morning, over half of the message, and just read most of the prophecy of Joel. So if you're at Joel 1, we're going to start right there with verse 1 and note that Joel claims this is the word of the Lord that came to him, the son of Pethuel. This indicates, of course, that Joel is claiming right at the outset that what follows is not merely his word, but it is God's word, the word of the one true God. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting of the locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. And with that verse, it might be helpful to just note, if you don't have it like in an introductory comment in your Bible, a locust plague or an infestation has just happened in Jerusalem. And Joel is commenting on that news headline. There's just been a massive locust infestation that has left the land, uh, unable to produce crops, so it's leading to famine. Joel is commenting in the aftermath of that news. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Things have gone from bad to worse. So awake, you drunkards. And weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. I think here in chapter 1, he's actually likening the locusts to an army. And in chapter 2, he's going to do the exact opposite, saying worse devastation is coming, an army's coming, and he's going to use some locust imagery to talk about that. He says, awake, verse 7, it has laid waste my vineyard and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made of white. The trees are stripped bare. Lament like a virgin who's wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Presumably this woman was all ready for her wedding day and, and her 
her groom is dead. Lament like that over this devastation that's happened. Verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the grounds mourn because the grain is destroyed and the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather all the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Notice this is a whole uh, a call for the, for the nation as a whole to repent. He said, hear cry, be ashamed, cry, fast, repent, call out on God. He's been building and building. And he speaks to, as it were, the highs and the lows in society. He speaks to the town leaders and to the town drunks, the pleasure seekers. He speaks to the workers in the fields and the workers in the temple. Everyone needs to hear this message from the Lord and repent. The recent famine, in other words, should wake them up to get serious about their waywardness and the fact that bigger judgments are coming down the pike. Joel anticipates worse days ahead. Look at verse 15. Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? want to pick up reading now at the beginning of chapter 2 as Joel continues to warn of this worst devastation ahead. The locusts previewed a worse devastation. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. In other words, send the warning call. Troops are coming. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord's coming near. It's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There's spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. They're like never has been before, nor will ever be after them through all through the years of all generations. Fire is going to devour before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them they leave a desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes this army. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. He continues describing this unstoppable, advancing, terrifying army. Pick up in verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The, hev- the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining the Lord utters his voice before his army. It's incredible. His army. God is in total control of this judgment by a pagan military. It says, for his camp is exceedingly great. 
He who executes his word is powerful. God is in total control of the judgment that will fall on Israel. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? If your cross-references tell you in the margin of your Bible, who can endure it is also found in Malachi 3 and in Revelation 6. Who can stand in the day of God's judgment? It's terrifying. After describing this military devastation that Jerusalem is going to experience, the Lord then urges again the people to repent. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. One commentator says there needs to be an inner conversion, not just a public spectacle of it. Return to the Lord your God. Get this. For he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent regarding what he's just announced and instead leave a blessing behind him. In fact, so much blessing that you will the next verse says or next part of the verse you'll lavishly offer a grain offering or a drink offering to the lord your god you don't even have enough to eat right now but god can turn it into blessing he can totally change your circumstances and there's another call for a national fast and repentance look at the middle of verse 17 i want to pick up with that word weep weep and say to the lord spare israel your people Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? People looking at Israel decimated and saying, yeah, look how strong their God is. Then, verse 18, we just crossed the halfway point of the book. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, oil, and you'll be satisfied. And I'll no more make you a reproach among the nations. I'm going to remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. I'm going to totally decimate your enemies. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. There's going to be a play on that word. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Their enemy has done great, atrocious things, and God has done great, gracious things. It's awesome. Fear not, verse 22, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. This is the description of future blessing and the restoration that's going to come about. Of course, this is going to start trickling in. This blessing is going to start trickling in when the nation returns in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah around 500 BC. But it will climax at the end of the church age with the monumental return of Jesus when, as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. It's trickling in, trickling in. It's going to come in in massive ways. So verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. 
He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. I think this is the climactic point of the book. He's going to repeat it. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I'm the Lord your God and there's none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Israel began experiencing hints of this fulfillment as they returned to the land. The land of Jerusalem in the exile. There was praising the name of the Lord and and the the shame that was on them, heaped on them after their decimation and exile, it started to be lifted. But that was really just a hint. This, my people shall never again be put to shame, is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus takes our shame on himself. When King Jesus came to earth and he was clothed in our shame, And he rose again to assure us that we're justified. No condemnation will ever, ever stand against God's people. That was the ultimate fulfillment of how God's people will never again be put to shame. Because Jesus bore our shame in our place. And it's interesting that here's exactly where Peter picked up to quote after the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is exactly what Jim read early in our service in Acts chapter 2 where the Apostle Peter on the Feast of Pentecost says, this has begun to be fulfilled in the church. The Spirit is being poured out on people. It doesn't matter what your age, what your gender, it doesn't matter what your social status is. The Spirit is the, is the, the gift to everyone. Not just the kings, not just the prophets. It's all of God's people. And Peter says, well, if God has begun to work this prophecy to fulfillment, then everyone should call on the name of the Lord, whom Peter says is Jesus of Nazareth. Call on the name of Jesus of Nazareth. All of these promises of shame that's gone and enemies that are decimated, they won't be completely fulfilled until the king himself reigns. And this is how Joel ends. Look at Joel 3 verse 1. God will restore the fortunes of his people. But 3 verse 2, he'll enter into judgment with all the nations for the way they oppressed God's people. I want to pick up reading in verse 11 where God describes this final judgment on all the nations. Chapter 3 verse 11, hasten and come all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
This is around Jerusalem. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes. Multitudes are there in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. That is a very dry region of desert near the Dead Sea. Egypt will become a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they've shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood that I've not yet avenged, for the Lord himself dwells personally in Zion. Joel announces that history, human history, will end with all the enemies of God's people being brought to justice with all of God's people whom he's chosen, who've turned to him and trusted in him, will be blessed and secure, never to be shamed again, and with the Lord himself present and ruling on earth. Now, if you continue reading through the rest of the Bible, several of these things aren't fulfilled until the very last chapters, right? Until, as John saw it, the new Jerusalem is where the king of kings is reigning over all creation. It's incredible. The main idea of Joel, the main idea in this prophecy is that history is going to climax with God's judgment of all nations. And until then, every devastation on earth, whether ecological devastation like locust plagues, or military decimation, like the Babylonians conquering Jerusalem. Every devastation on earth is a small foretaste of that ultimate judgment. And it's a wake-up call to which we should respond with repentance and total reliance on God. Total life commitment to God. History is going to climax with God's judgment on all nations, all who are opposed to him. And until then, every devastation on earth should be a wake-up call for that final day to prepare for it with repentance and total trust in the Lord. I want to break this down into smaller bite-sized chunks that we can chew on and take with us. I think we need to ask just how should the truth of Joel affect our lives? I'm going to be breaking down that big statement. The first is, Very simply this, you should call on the Lord Jesus to save you. This is according to chapter 2, verse 32. It's what Peter predominantly proclaimed. He looked to Joel and he said, you should call on the name of the Lord to save you. Many people point out that the prophecy of Joel centers on the day of the Lord. It is a theme that is mentioned a dozen times. The day of the Lord, 
if I would put it in my own words, is simply that moment in history when God shows extraordinary power. And Joel's reference are at least three. The day of the Lord is at least when the enemy armies threaten in the next century or two. He's referring to that as the day of the Lord when God brings judgment that he's been declaring on his people and he shows his extraordinary power. It's also referring to the entire New Testament era between the coming of the king and the return of the king. And that's why Peter is saying we're in this. And it's also, according to Joel, what we might call the end of the end. We talk about the day of the Lord like Paul did as still future because these judgments are still to come in their climactic force. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's really interesting that Peter picks up on this. He said at Pentecost, a few weeks after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that they were living in the day of the Lord. All of us who are living between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus are in a sense living in the day of the Lord. It's no wonder, I think, that calendars for centuries made our dates with this little subscription A.D. in the year of our Lord. We are living in 2021, the year of our Lord. We're living between the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And Peter says to anyone who is living in this era, you need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus who proved that he is the Lord by his resurrection. You need to call on him to save you. If you've never called on Jesus to save you from God's judgment, do so now. He is your only hope of being forgiven before God of your guilt for rebellion. He is the only way that you can be reconciled forever to God and given eternal life. The only way to avoid the ultimate judgments that Joel describes is to call on the name of the Lord. Secondly, Joel should affect your life like this. You should let God get your attention with smaller trials he allows in your life. What's most notable about Joel, like I said in the reading, is that he's writing after a locust plague in Jerusalem. And what he said, in effect, is this. You've just experienced something bad. But compared to what's to come, it's minor. Let it get your attention. We have so many bad things happen in our lives. Do we let God use those bad things to get our attention? I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens is God's judgment. I'm just saying, do we use trials as wake-up calls? We could apply it to many, many events in our lives and many events this very year. But I want to just step back and call us to think about something that has been in the headlines for 18 months. There is a virus that was deliberately engineered to spread. And it was, through some kind of human activity, released from a lab. And it has led in part to the death of at least 5 million people, making it the third leading cause of death behind heart disease and cancer. Have you allowed this crisis to get your attention? 
Or is it all political to you? Have you done business with God? What's happened is terrible. And you know what? It's fairly minor. I think anyone who has common sense looks at human nature and looks at the headlines that are coming out every day of what's going on internationally and says, something much worse is coming. You don't have to have common sense. You just have to read the Bible and know that worse is certainly ahead. Do you let little trials be a wake-up call to do business with God? God, am I living for the purpose for which you made me? Am I ready to meet you? Do little trials force you to wake up? Like, like Joel says, here, wake up, lament, repent. Little trials should get our attention. Third, Christians are people of repentance. We should never stop repenting of our sins. The prophecy of Joel is a massive call to repentance. I pointed it out. The first half of the book, up to chapter 2, verse 18, hangs on these calls to hear and wake up and lament and repent relating to God. We've got to get this. Relating to God begins with repentance. Repentance refers to a change of the direction of your heart that affects your whole life. Repentance is a change of the direction of your heart that itself results in a change of direction in your life. Joel powerfully pictures it. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, as returning to the Lord with all of your heart. The next verse, chapter 2, verse 13, as Tear your heart into shreds. Don't tear your clothes. Tear your heart into shreds. It is a heart change that basically involves grief. God, I've done so much wrong against you. You confess it, you turn from it, and you rightly relate with God. That's repentance. And decisive repentance is the way your relationship with God begins. There's no relationship with God for us unless we repent. But repentance for Christians never stops. My change of heart about who I've been and what I've done, it never stops. It's like a heartbeat. If you want to know whether you're alive to God, check your pulse. Are you repenting? Are you praying like Jesus taught? God, today, forgive me of my sins, even as I forgive those who sin against me. Christians are people who never stop repenting. The church is a repenting people. This might be instructive to you this morning. I wonder if you've come here and you have failed. Or God is using maybe this message to bring up sins to your memory. And you say, boy, my my heart is right now so hard against the Lord. Where do I even start? Repent. You say, but I've repented a hundred times. Repent again. Go back to square one. It's the powerful truth that should affect our lives from Joel. Fourth, Christian, 
Never give yourself to despair. Instead, hope in the God who restores. I think chapter 2, verse 23, if we didn't have the prophecy of Joel, this might be the most powerful, beautiful, gracious, heartwarming truth I would miss. Joel 2.23. We're going to get to it in just a sec, but if we didn't have the book of Joel, we wouldn't have this continual, repeated call to repentance. Nor would we have the encouragement, chapter 2, verse 13, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, we would have that back in Exodus because it's an exact quotation of Moses. But here we're hearing it centuries later, maybe 600 years after Moses. Joel is still proclaiming that God is a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. (laughs) Joel highlights that God doesn't change. God is full of grace and mercy. And the same way that God said to Israel, I'll respond to you in Moses' day, the same way in Joel's day he said, I will respond to you if you repent, is the same way that he will respond to you today if you will tear your heart and not your clothes and you will repent and turn to the Lord with all of your heart. If you've been a rebel... Do not despair. Your God is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's hope in the Lord. Going further, look at Joel 2.18. It says, God will have pity on you. Verse 23, God will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Again, I say, I think that statement is just most distinctive about this prophecy. Our God is a God of restoration. Are you right now experiencing loss? Heavy loss. Maybe your selfishness ruined your marriage. Maybe someone else's cruelty has ruined your career, or maybe someone else's cruelty has flooded your life with shame. Or maybe God has allowed disease to take a beloved family member. Are you experiencing loss? This loss will change your life. In a sense, you will never get over it. You will learn to live with it. But Christian... No matter what has happened, you must never give in to despair because our God is a God who can replace what the locusts have eaten. Chew on it. He is a God who raises the dead. He is a God who can who can work in your life in the future in such a way that you'll look back on your life as a whole and say, if I could control it, I wouldn't change it in the slightest. That's what it means when we stand in eternity and we say, God, to you belongs all wisdom. We're saying, God, if I could have the reins of my life, I couldn't improve it at all. That's incredible. Are you filled with this kind of hope this morning, even in your heavy loss, that God can restore what the locusts have eaten? 
I love how one pastor put it a generation ago, speaking on our God who's full of hope. He said, the Christian hope is actually a worldly hope. It's a new worldly hope. He says, we don't come to the people of our day with special language games that we play on Sunday morning. (laughs) He says, no, we talk plainly about what the world is and what the world will be. Christ is our hope. He's our hope for that frail, withered body lying in deathly silence among the funeral flowers. She's joined to Christ. Because he lives, she'll live. And when the voice of his risen body again sounds on earth, her resurrection laughter will echo his name. We hope in a God of resurrection. He can restore to us all that's taken away. Because Jesus rose from the dead and is returning, he can restore all that he takes away. Final point and conclusion is, remember that world history is moving toward God's judgment. Especially zero in on chapter 3, verse 16. Joel repeatedly reminds us that a climactic day is coming when God's extraordinary power to judge will be displayed on earth. It will involve the king's return and rapture of his people. It'll involve heavy opposition to the king and his people. It'll involve severe and complete justice. It'll involve a total renewal of creation, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3. The reality that judgment is coming is both encouraging for those who long for justice, we long for that day, and it is terrifying for anyone who imagines that they're in control. Look at verse 16 again of chapter 3. The Lord roars like a lion from Zion. The heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. You take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late, before judgment falls. When you consider the day, is it well with your soul? That's what we're going to sing here in just a minute. Is it well with your soul? Can you sing, and Lord, haste the day when my faith will be made sight? Lord, haste the day. Bring it. Bring it on. When Jesus steps his foot back on earth and reigns as King of Kings, If you've taken refuge in the Lord, you know that the Lord is a refuge for you. You have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that the prophecy of Joel would wake us up and help each of us to do heart business. I pray that not one of us would despair that we're beyond hope. Instead, I pray that we would all humble ourselves before you and ask, Lord, what are you teaching me through these trials? I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and have soft hearts. Father, I ask that for believers in here who are feeling just the weight of loss, especially this time of year, this time of this year, Lord, I ask that you would encourage them to keep holding on to you, the God of hope, the God who can restore.
Oh God, whether it's this year, whether it's 10 years or 30 years from now, we will truly say that we hoped in you and were never put to shame. Lord, I thank you so much that we are in the middle of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Thank you that many in here have experienced that salvation. I pray that many more would. Jesus, be glorified as we, your people, respond to this powerful word you've given. Amen.